the podcast you are trying to reach, Main Street Mesa, and its hosts, David Crummy and Ryan Wozniak, are currently unavailable. We greatly appreciate your listenership. Please stay on the podcast as we attempt to forward you to the next available podcast hosts. Your estimated waiting time is completely dependent on how much Ryan and David talk. Your podcast experience will continue after the tone. We want to try something a little bit different. We wanted to bring more voices to the podcast, and we wanted to make sure that we're not, what's the word, um, taking, taking the over the conversation. Taking you same, the same old path that Ryan and David take you down. So this is a new, fresh perspective. We asked Camille from the last episode, gave her carte blanche to record her own episode for chapters three and four of Happy City. I think you'll really enjoy it. And it's going to be a completely different perspective that's not Ryan and David babbling about all their MUAP or master's planning. Like they are right now. Right now. Done. We're not done. We'll just keep talking. It's a fresh perspective, exciting new chapter for Main Street Mesa, new co-hosts. This is a great, grand experiment. Brand new perspectives. Hope that you, our listeners enjoy this experiment because it's David and Brian free starting now. Tell us what you think. Still make sure that you get on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the DVDs and tell us what you want to say. Part of the conversation. But we will eventually stop talking. Eventually. And let the real posts on. today to talk about Happy City, chapters three and four. Mm-hmm. And Camille, you made an outline for us, right? Yep. <laughs> What's on our outline? Uh, we'll start with introductions, her name and such, and then we'll work chapters. Oh, okay. It's very thorough. Yeah, I like it. All right. Well, I guess maybe we should, like you said, say who we are. So my name's Johanna, and... Where do you live and what do you do? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, I live in Mesa and I work in social services. I work in a community center here in Mesa. Yeah, for Catholic Charities, but have worked in social work and case management for quite a while. But I care a lot about Mesa and that's Mm -hmm. how I got connected into talking about um, city planning and development books on a podcast. Mm -hmm. Who are you? Our guest speaker today. (laughs) My name is Melissa, and I, for the last year, have lived about a block away from Main Street in downtown Mesa, and I live in a really cool little neighborhood that loves community, and yeah. Yeah. I'm so jealous of how urban you are. Yeah. Urban in Mesa. Right. Yeah, you're right down there. And who are you? I am Camille Weaver. I live in um, <clears throat> West. I live in Midtown Mesa. I like to say, and I 
stay at home with our two children, but I'm involved in a lot of other ways with uh, Mesa, with Downtown Mesa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're, we've lived here for uh, a year now. And Josh, my husband, and I are kind of obsessed with, like, um, well, living sustainably and seeing our city flourish. So that's why I was totally into this book. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think you read most of it even before we started talking about doing a podcast on it. Yeah, I read it completely. You were talking about it a lot. And you'd be like, this other thing that I read on Happy City. I've got to read this book. Right. Yeah. Now we have a little bit. Yeah. So we'll do the third and fourth chapter. Third chapter is titled The Broken Social Scene. It starts with a quote that I really like um, that I think kind of has the spirit of the chapter in it. Um, it's a quote by Aristotle, and it says, He who is unable to live in society, or who has no need because he's sufficient for himself, must be either a beast or a god. Uh, and I liked that because it, it does kind of set up the chapter talking about isolation and how the way that cities are built or not built can encourage that tendency we perhaps already have in ourselves mm-hmm. to isolate ourselves mm-hmm. or think that we're sufficient in and of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So that's how it starts off. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, just to put it real brief, a lot of this chapter is about how um, man's or woman's desire to be free and have the quiet and space and serenity of living outside of the city has caused sprawl. Have you guys ever seen the big short movie? Mm-hmm. Nope. Oh, it's really good talking because in, in the chapter he talks about like this urban friend, French called the excerpts. Is that what he called them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all these houses that like became vacant after foreclosures. Yeah. 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 He even, uh, he was, what was it? He was on the repo tour. That's uh-huh. what he was calling it. Yeah. With this oh, realtor, which I, it kind of made me feel sad because they were going through all, looking at these houses and the great deals. But all I kept thinking was, real people lived in that house. Right. With, like, desires and dreams, and they were excited to move out there, and it failed, and they Mm -hmm. couldn't stay anymore. That Mm -hmm. made me feel sad. Right. I know this isn't actually how the tour was, but I imagine them being on, like, a tour bus with, like, someone up in the front with a microphone being like, and on your right is the beautiful, you know, 3,000-square-foot home owned by so-and-so, and now is broken down and bank it and you can get it for the low low price of whatever right. the housing prices were in 2000 yeah. what was it 2007 mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah um which i know is not how it was but just kind of that happy uh seeing an opportunity maybe which right it was potentially a good real estate investment i don't know but kind of boiling it down to just the property itself without seeing the community that it existed in yeah and even these people thinking that they're going out to get these great deals he goes on in the chapter to kind of not in terrible detail but showing how it's actually not that great of a deal considering the uh gas you're going to pay with all the commuting uh and then like stopping for you know coffee or restaurants or something like one one of these guys he's saying it's like a two-hour drive Mm-hmm. just to go in for work. So he's leaving before his family's awake. He's coming back pissed from the traffic and such. So then he's going, you know, to the gym to work things out. 
So you've got the gym membership you've got to pay for. And the gym is like an extra 20 minutes yeah. past his house, yeah. which I was like, no, don't get back <laughs> in your car. So it's it, the actual price of buying, uh, getting good real estate deals out on the French is just not, it's mm-hmm. not that great. Mm-hmm. I felt for the kids, the teenagers that was talking about who were all just hanging out together drinking later in the chapter mm-hmm. because it made me think of we lived for five years in the suburbs of Detroit. And so we didn't like have the big house or anything, but we definitely bought a condo at like a screaming deal because mm-hmm. of the house market, housing market mm-hmm. crashing there. Mm-hmm. And it was like living in like a zombie apocalypse. There was an abandoned truck factory across the road from us, wow. like the creepiest place ever. And in the neighborhood, like it just was so empty feeling and I can just picture those kids like being there and being like there's nothing around mm. there's nothing to do this is right. depressing I I want there to be something else yeah I feel that <laughs> were yeah. you in the city um in the suburbs oh, of course so they weren't like excerpts they weren't super far out yeah. from the city but it was the same type of thing in some ways like just okay. the grass growing up over everything and mm, we would take yeah. walks around the abandoned factory sometimes it's kind of creepy yeah, <laughs> yeah that is weird to think of that in an urban like setting usually you think of that in a rural setting like my family comes from a rural community and that's what you know people mm-hmm. go hang out because there's not much else to do but mm-hmm. it's interesting to think of that in a part of the city that is close to downtown but it's just kind of everybody's moved out and moved on and all like, the roads are way too big because there's no one out driving yeah yeah that is a creepy image almost it's, it's unsettling to have a city area yeah without people yeah. So I grew up in rural Mississippi. Pretty much everything in Mississippi is going to be rural. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I'm trying to think of like what we would do for fun. People would go mudding. You, know, <laughs> you get in your truck and you drive in mud. Ooh. Uh-huh. It's very exciting. Did you guys go cow tipping? No. Is that not a thing? Okay. I don't think that's a thing. Okay. Not not really. Uh, you would egg your friend's house. Uh, <laughs> I think, like, I don't, I don't think I ever heard about friends driving into, air quotes, the city uh-huh. of Jackson to do stuff. We kind of found things to do around, but even so, turning fifteen and a half and getting your car was freedom because mm-hmm. not you couldn't walk anywhere, right? Mm. Yeah, and you're not biking anywhere either, really, because it's just highways and narrow streets with cars going too fast yeah for sure i so i grew up in the suburbs of kind of of st louis county which is very different from st louis city um as any proud st louis county person would tell you um but yeah there wasn't really much walking in our community but i only lived like a half a mile from my high school and i would walk home sometimes and it was a super weird thing and Mm -hmm. everyone would make a big deal about right. it like oh are you pissed why are you walking home you know uh we were uh, in texas visiting family last year and it was in the suburbs the outer edges of austin and there was a donut shop maybe a mile away from us around there um and there were some nice sidewalks to get there i the time we were there i never saw anyone on them really but josh and i suggested hey this morning let's just walk over to the donut shop (laughs) his family were they they thought it was the strangest thing and even walking back like kind of like 
faces were drawn, like, why are we doing this? We could have taken the car. It would have taken three minutes. Uh-huh. It was, I, it was weird. Like, I, I felt like the weird person uh-huh. to be walking a mile to get there mm-hmm. on this beautiful sidewalk. Yeah. How did, how did you grow up, Melissa? Um, I grew up in a smaller city, like 125,000. No, maybe more like 250 when I was growing up, I guess. Oh. 1,000 people. In Texas? In Colorado, Colorado Springs. Colorado. Oh, Colorado Springs. So, yeah, kind of. It felt it feels more like a town, but big enough to be a city with all the amenities of a city. I feel mm. like that's kind of what I would feel like is the ideal sort of thing. I don't super love the rural or the really urban, even though there's good things about both. But mm-hmm. the small city, larger town yeah. is super cool. What yeah. do you mean by really urban? Um, Like just the center of a big city, I guess. Even where I live now, it's not really urban, but I don't know. Like, there's there's fun things about that and cool things about that, but I don't know that it's necessarily the thing I would want forever. I don't know. Because of density of people or uh, not being able to have easier access to, like... Yeah, more that. Okay. It's really fun where we live that we have access to some museums and things like that that you wouldn't have in a town... Like, or a city like Colorado Springs or a town like Fort Collins in Colorado where I mostly grew up and was a young adult and like most of my life has been spent there. But you have a lot more, like, so an urban area has a lot of variety in some ways, but the, the larger town, smaller city has kind of everything in it and it's all within either walking distance or driving this short driving distance. Like I could walk mm-hmm. a lot of places at least in Fort Collins, not so much in Colorado Springs, I guess, but you could drive everywhere in 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah. And in downtown, you can't go to the grocery store, like right where you live. There's not a lot of just like basic. Here, yeah. you're talking about Mesa. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. not a lot of basic things immediately around. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that's kind of limited. You have to get on the highway sometimes to go yeah, it's kind of weird. shopping for different things. If only would someone would open a market. <laughs> if only. <laughs> right. Camille. Um. Uh, he talked about the um, the social cost of distance. Is that something you guys have felt before, Johanna? You you commuted for a while mm-hmm. out to Glendale from here, so that right. that drive on a normal traffic day. Like was... so, with no traffic, it would be like thirty five minutes. But with traffic, I mean, it could be anywhere from fifty to an hour and a half. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes a little bit longer if traffic was really bad because mm-hmm. of an accident or. When President Trump was here and they shut down the highway, that took a really long time. Um, But yeah, that there was, I did spend a lot of time in my car. And when I was reading this chapter, I was trying to think about what that was like for me. Um, And I feel like the author wrote this narrative of this guy, Randy, you know, driving and how he's so angry when he comes home and he has back trouble because of it. And um, he connects a lot of his social isolation with how far he worked from where he lived. Um, and I can definitely see how that can contribute to that. But I also, I didn't, so first of all, to preface, I didn't love driving that far. It was kind of a job that I needed at the time. And so I made it work. Um, and I mean, I liked the job, but I didn't, I didn't like the commute necessarily. There were good things about it. I got to 
talk to my family a whole lot more um, because they live out of state on the phone or um, listen to podcasts or just kind of decompress from the day and kind of think about it. And there was that separation between work and home. Mm -hmm. So when he was kind of writing about all the really negative things about a commute, I was thinking there are some good things about it. And I, I don't feel like it made me more socially isolated and this is the Randy who is driving two hours, right? Two hours, right. Yeah. And that would be different. If I was driving a total of four hours a day, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. That's like a part-time job, right? And, but I do see where I see distance creating more isolation is like people who are my friends that even live in the Phoenix metro area, but they move out of Mesa and, you know, move to another part of the city 40 minutes away, but also not right where I worked and how hard it is to make our schedules work to see each other. And I think, right. Camille, I think you sent me an article even a while ago um, talking about how the further that you live from a friend, even within the same urban area, the harder it is to make your schedules sync up. And so like we all live within 10 to 15 minutes of each other driving. Um, and I think it's so much easier to think about driving 10 minutes or traveling, you know, just a really short distance to see somebody than it is trying to go to a completely different part of town. It, the distance can feel like a barrier to connecting in those ways. And being on a whole nother side of the city for most of your time, you also start to develop mm-hmm. friendships there. Yeah. But those friends aren't. I mean, depending on where their commute is, I guess sure. it doesn't cross over with your friends and yes. your at home life. So that yeah. gets weird too. And yes. frustrating. Yeah. I felt like I had kind of connections in the Glendale area and new places that I ate and people that I worked with, but it would start to, I know that I went to the gym with a friend over there because it was just easier for us to, to go there. But I also, I wanted to hang out with them outside of work and not just at five thirty, you know, on the weekends or I wanted to invite people to, join in with things I was doing in Mesa, but it was such a distance that that did create a barrier. You're right. And even uh, you had a friend that you wanted me to get in touch with. Right. You wanted to introduce us, but her whole life is in West Phoenix. Right. Mm -hmm. My whole life is East Valley. Right. So that 45 (laughs) minute to hour distance is just a barrier to anything, right? Right. Like, unless you're super motivated maybe, um, or have a really specific reason like getting paid (laughs) or, um, whatever. Yeah. So I, I can see how distance can create barriers. Um, I just kind of disagreed that it inherently created isolation, um, which is what I think the author kind of was saying Mm -hmm. or how it felt. Totally. It's like the correlation doesn't apply causation thing. Like did this man, like, was he changed by being in the suburbs so that he didn't really prioritize social interaction? Or did he move to the suburbs partially because he wanted to have more privacy? Or are those things interacting with each other? Are there other mm-hmm. factors at play? I don't think it's as simple, mm-hmm. like right. you're saying, yeah. that just living in the exurbs is causing all of the social disruption in his life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the chapter is called The Broken Social Scene. So mm-hmm. I guess... It's a chicken or egg, but um, is the social scene broken because people are moving out there or is it broken? Are people are people broken, basically? Like, mm-hmm. do we have this tendency within us to interact with society in an unhealthy way by either completely withdrawing from it or um, immersing ourselves so much in it that we can't, you know, 
have a separate identity. Uh, and I also think there's a, I don't think he's just trying to name the differences between an hour commute and a 10 or 15 minute commute in your car. Right. But the difference between the option of walking or biking hmm. to your workplace versus mm-hmm. driving, there is, there are so many more opportunities for social interaction when right. you're out of your car. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. And that is true. I mean, I think you, uh, Melissa, you and I have both lived in places where walking um, or biking is a much more common mode of transportation. Mm. I think you did, didn't you, mm-hmm. in the yeah. Czech Republic? Um, and then I lived in the Netherlands for a little while and then also in Kyrgyzstan and Central Asia. And walking or biking was the only way to get around in those places, unless you did a shared taxi, which was a big <laughs> ordeal. Um, did that feel different? Like after having that experience when you came back here, and more car-dependent mm. America. What did that feel like? It feels like when you're walking, you are really a part of your surroundings to me. Like, you know mm-hmm. where things are a lot more. Yes. And you feel more connected to it. It's like you're connected to the earth or something. But yeah. you're connected to the community, and you see the same people walking. Mm-hmm. And there's parts of that that are really scary. Like, I had to walk 20 minutes home from a train station to my, like, Soviet block building housing and it was super dark and it was really scary. I hated that about living in the Czech Republic because I didn't want to interact with certain scary people in the dark at night. <laughs> but, Fair enough. Fair enough. But it was weird to come back and be like, I don't really feel like I know where things are. I don't feel like I mm-hmm. see the same people. I feel like I'm just kind of in my little metal box traveling along and so on. So is everyone else. It actually was a really hard adjustment to go yeah. back to that. That was hard for me too. Yeah. I remember um, really intentionally trying to walk places, um, which I now I would not you end up going like way too far. Yeah. Um, or just like, I would be very, okay, I'm not going to get back in this American mentality of driving everywhere. Um, I'm going to walk to these, I'm going to walk to Walmart and do my grocery shopping. Cause it was pretty close to where I live. Walk to Walmart. Yeah, I know. Everybody's huge, hot Walmart. parking lot. Right. Like, dangerous streets. They're not yeah, a good place to cross. Yeah. Well, and then they ended up, I would cut through the canal and they ended up blocking the the gate that yes. opened between. So I would have to walk all the way around, and it like doubled the amount of time it took to get there. Um, City planning and justice. Yeah. And then if you take a big backpack into Walmart to carry your groceries, right? And everyone's like, like uh, "What are you doing?" Um, but also, I remember. So then I started driving to Walmart. Um, but I remember it was close to Home Depot. Like it's in this. It shares a parking lot, right? And so I would go to Home Depot and to Walmart, and I would think, okay, I'm not going to drive between these two parking lots. That's ridiculous. It is such a small distance. But then I was taking my shopping cart and pushing it over to where my car was full of groceries, and it locked on me because shopping carts have, once they cross the line of the parking lot, they lock so that you don't steal them. And I just remember being so frustrated at America in general, it, which was unfair, but it's like kind of against us, yeah. Like I'm, in in the yeah, in, largely in the totally city did that anyway. like six months ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with the Target cart trying to go to like Hobby Lobby across the street. Yes, or not even the street, but like the parking lot. Right, <laughs> like so. Literally, I'm gonna have to drive from one store that is next to the next store. Yeah, so silly. Um, and then you miss your parking spot under the shaded mesquite tree. There you go. So there bad. you go. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know if walking in those spaces has the same uh, sense of knowing your place as it does a in a city like Amsterdam or you That's know in, in the Czech. But um, yeah, just I feel like walking can be hindered in just the way that our 
society is built. Hmm. Whereas I didn't really question it so much when I lived in Amsterdam because that's what everybody did. Yeah. Um, and that was just, I, I felt really free with my bike because mm. I wouldn't have purchased a car there because I was a poor college student and was only, you know, there for a, a certain period of time. Um, but I could go anywhere in the city with my bike. And that was really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't feel like I missed my car that much. I mean, a couple times when it was raining, but then <laughs> Dutch people were like, what? You'll just get wet. It's fine. It's no big deal. It just, it's just water. Um, so it, it didn't really seem like that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Unless you were moving a heavy object, that was harder. Yes, oh. that would be harder. For sure. Yeah. So I almost wished that you guys would have been like, oh, it was so lonely and sad to have to get back in the cars. But it's almost like in specific to the city, I think, in lots of cities that are kind of built on grid and uh, um, strip malls and such. Uh-huh. It's kind of almost more sad to walk yeah (laughs) walking feels very lonely here and yes Mm -hmm. and having a car i know that i'm not supposed to feel this way based on the book what the book said but having a car makes me feel um free Mm -hmm. (laughs) and kind of powerful because i can go where i want when i want like Mm -hmm. if i wanted to just straight up take off and drive back to st louis I could like, um, I don't have to wait for anybody else's schedule or I I don't know. I just, I like the idea of having that freedom. And so even reading this book, it kind of brought out kind of that, uh, response in me of like, don't you dare take my car. Um, which makes me feel weird because it makes me feel like I'm clutching onto my gun, like talking about the second amendment or something or Schmeagle, like my precious, (laughs) it is my precious. I mean, (laughs) it's the most expensive thing I own. And it is a huge part of my life um, mm-hmm. here. Yes. If and your so, society's so set up for it, like, exactly. what do you do when you don't have one? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And um, in one of our recent um, dust storms, when Ahaboob was rolling through, it was the winds were strong, like branches kind of being blown. We were in the car, branches being blown across the street and sideways rain like just the left side of our car was getting wet from the droplets and we were very safe uh protected from the elements in our car but we were passing bus stops and i felt so sad for some of the people who didn't have the option Mm -hmm. of the car the bus stops aren't that great no i mean half of them are just like the pole right Mm -hmm. with the sign on there they had no way they were so they were kind of like huddled up leaning against it with their eyes closed real tight waiting for the the bus to get there yeah sucks i thought about buying a bunch of umbrellas (laughs) and locking them to those uh bus stops that don't have a awning Mm, yeah so that people could at least like get some open it up for some shade yeah Mm mm-hmm he, I think this is not the first time he's brought it up in the book, but he, he says uh, there was a study where they were trying to determine if you dropped your wallet on your street, what are the chances you think you'd get it back? What do, if you dropped it on your own street, what do you think would happen? Matt actually did. He, My okay. husband went out jogging right. one morning and put down his wallet and keys on a bench to tie his shoes or something and then just went for a jog and forgot he had put them down and came home and was freaking out because he couldn't find them. And we thought, oh no, like we, 
live in an area where there's a lot of crime and we're right next to the police station. So people being released from jail, like are walking down the street where like, there's no way that his wallet is anywhere good. Like someone took it. And I think his phone maybe too is with it. I can't remember. But anyway, he ended up going to the assisted living, this big tower that has assisted living right next to it, just in case like someone had maybe dropped it off. And as soon as he walked in the door, um, they knew who he was because they had seen his like ID from his wallet and a really kind <laughs> older funny. lady who didn't even always remember like her name or where she was or anything. She had found his stuff and then brought it in. Oh, cool. And left it at the desk and she was actually super concerned that maybe he had been abducted or something since his oh, stuff was still there and he was gone. But it was amazing. Like we were so amazed that someone had noticed that his stuff was there and taken it to a safe place and been really concerned for his well-being. Yeah. It wasn't what we would have expected to happen on our street, but it did. Yeah, that's cool. And I think that's kind of what he was trying to draw attention to that is that most people are more distrusting of what uh, neighbors are actually worthy of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I remember I read this um, a while ago, this chapter and th- that specific part. And I initially was like, no, I would think someone would turn in my wallet. Like, I believe in the good of people. I'm different than all these other people that say that they wouldn't. Um, but then I think uh, maybe a couple weeks or a month later, I was walking in the neighborhood that I work in, which is a lower income community. And um, I dropped my debit card out of my pocket and this guy started like chasing me down saying like, Hey lady, Hey lady. And I was like, what does he want? <laughs> and then he sits up there and he's giving me my debit card back. And that really surprised me. And mm-hmm. I realized there are some communities that I don't think that in, um, maybe in general, I would say, yeah, sure. People are good and would return my wallet. But actually if it comes down to like practically, um, if I drop my wallet, I think it's gone. Right. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that this is all about, are my neighbors going to steal from me? No. But are, are my neighbors going to recognize my picture? Oh. Hmm. Do they even know what I look like? Oh. Or am I just like driving my car into my garage and uh-huh. they never even see me? I'm I mean, gonna... our mailboxes are right next to our door. We don't even right. have to walk to the street for it. Oh. So not so much about safety as being uh, known? No, I'm sure that's part of it, but mm-hmm. there's just another aspect hmm. to it to think through. Yeah. For sure. I would have a high doubt that people at the end of my street would know what I look like. Well, the end of your street is a dead end, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) But like at the other end of my street, I don't know. I don't know what they look like, if I'm honest. Yeah, well. They might know what I look like because they drive past me when they're driving to work. (laughs) But I don't drive past them Mm because they're at the end of the dead end street. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. We, my, my, we're a one car family and while it's hard to do so in the summertime, the rest of the nine months out of the year, we pretty much just do our bike, if at all possible. We can go days without getting in our car. Uh, so we see a lot of people. It's fun. Mm-hmm. And we can have a weird bike. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> like, we can, it's a, we call it, it's an extra cycle. So the, it's an extended bike. Basically, there's like a skateboard deck kind of in the back of the bike so I can fit my children there and then we can go. So it's weird looking and we get a lot of people talking to us about it. One time I was uh, biking past a mom who was sitting out after school watching her kids play. And I was probably 40 yards away from her, but she saw me and started like clapping and cheering for me real quick. (laughs) (laughs) You go, girl. It was so fun. And then stopping at... uh, we have to, you know, 
uh, what am I trying to say? The, the intersections, pushing mm. the button to wait for it. Mm-hmm. We wait there with the other walkers. So I have other parents like asking, where can I get one of those? That'd be so much better than this stroller that I have. So just a lot more interaction just by reducing my speed by, mm-hmm. I don't know, 30, 20 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. M- moving through your community, much more integrated in your community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no really barriers or put up. Melissa, did you have any other things that really stood out to you about the chapter that you wanted to mention? Um, I guess this is the first or second chapter. The first chapter. The, about social disconnect. Are you sharing your book? I am sharing my book. I'm holding it in between us, but we both read it and neither one of us made notes on it, so it's kind of hard to remember. You did some really light ones. Yes. <laughs> um, I guess there were two quotes that I liked on page 50. He said, absolutely nothing matters more than our relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. And then page 56, he says, by omitting strangers from our lives, sprawl leeches away our capacity for dealing with radically different perspectives. And I really liked that one. I feel like that's something that is challenging me in the last year or so of living where we're living. There are a lot of people who are a lot more different from me than in the other places that I've lived, just immediately in my neighborhood, mm-hmm. like people in different socioeconomic strata or people of different races a lot more than some other places that I've lived, people from different backgrounds, people in different current living situations than mine. Mm -hmm. And that's actually really challenging and really uncomfortable a lot of the time. And I don't always know how to respond to all the challenges that come along with that. Mm -hmm. But it's cool too. It expands my perspective. A lot of my kids, I notice, like it expands their perspective too. They're just used to a greater variety of people and buildings and environments and things like that. Like they don't think that things that are different from them are scary. It just looks normal to them for there to be a lot of different types of houses and buildings and people around. And that's really cool. I love that about where we live. Yeah. You probably live in one of the more diverse, um, diversely zoned parts of the city. Like, I mean, there's maybe, I don't, I don't know much about the zoning, I guess. So it's not just like a neighborhood. Mm. I mean, you're in a condo or is that what they call it? Yeah. Across the street is a museum down the streets, you know, cafe and a restaurant mm-hmm. you have the police station right next to you it's all mixed in there it's kind of like the stereotypical small town in a way like we see the fire trucks go by and <laughs> the policemen riding their bikes and all of those things <laughs> that my son loves yeah yeah that is a good quote i think i read it and i didn't even notice that i'm just going to be honest that like reading through this and initially i think i maybe missed a lot of what he said because i was mm-hmm. reacting really strongly to the tone that he was using, even though I agree with what he's saying, like isolation is bad and distance can contribute to isolation or, or social um, disconnect. Um, sometimes it was just kind of hard to get over that tone, uh, even well, though I agree with what he was saying. I felt like the tone was that of an anthropologist going into another culture and then just demeaning it by the way that he was talking about it without fully participating or understanding it himself going into this um, community, this bedroom community far away from San Francisco saying, here's why these people moved here. Here's how bad their life really is. Mm. Um, And here's all the problems that come Mm -hmm. from that without actually being a part of the community. And he makes it sound like there wasn't community to be a part of. Um, But part of me doesn't know if I believe that. Like, uh, 
But then also taking a step back and saying, yeah, it would be super hard to to have time for friends or family or, or just other connections when you're spending four hours on the road. So I kind of went back and forth, but I definitely felt like I reacted to the, the tone of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like if this was a book that I wanted my family to read, for example, that live in the suburbs and love it and um, can't imagine living in a more dense place, this was not a good book to hand to them because I think they would feel defensive mm-hmm. about like my community's not that bad. That, that was my initial yeah, response I mean, it to that. Yeah, like he found a, um, one that fits pretty good in his Yeah, deck. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, okay, I need an example of this. Here's my example. Yeah. Um, and surely there are people in this community, even if they're the minority, um, who do value social connection and, mm-hmm. and building that community. But I think his greater point is that the way that the city and the highway system and the, the commute is set up, is it makes that even more challenging and is yet another barrier to connection. And I can get on board with that. Yeah. I just don't like it when you kind of paint with a broad brush and don't see and only see what's wrong or broken about a community without seeing what's also good and beautiful or, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are good reasons why people moved out to have a house um, for their family. Like there, there's good motivation in that as well. It's not all yeah, we wrong, do, but maybe what they... Awesome. Right. Maybe what they actually want, though, isn't being realized in this community. Yes. And and I, yeah, um, what they're looking for isn't, it. this community actually maybe makes it harder. Like that connection to yeah. their family, for example, and then talking about how there's a really high gang rate in in these communities that are so far from a city center. <laughs> so, thanks. I just wanted to get that off my chest because, so. you know, it's a... Uh, that was yeah. the part that I yeah, didn't that like about a, it. That was a good thing to point out. I think. Okay. Uh, but aside from just time spent in your car, maybe you can share a little bit what you learned at um, the Strong Towns talk you went to. Mm-hmm. There are more. It's more than just time in the car or gas money. Yeah. So, like for society as a whole. Yes. Yeah. So that was really interesting to to go to the Strong Towns lecture. And if you haven't heard of that, I would suggest looking that up. Um, it's a like strongtowns.org. I think. .org, I think I should know before I said that, but maybe David Crummy can put it in the show notes or the, you know, the, the link at the bottom of whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's talking about basically as we're building out and out and out, um, it requires a ton of infrastructure. So if we're building a, a bedroom community, two hours drive at 75 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour outside of the city center, that is a ton of pipeline and electric uh, lines and, you know, the infrastructure, the highway itself even. Um, that's a lot of resources being placed in just kind of continuing to expand and expand and expand that one community um, versus building more closely together. Uh, you know, there, there are ways to to build infrastructure that are more efficient and are better um, because not only is it costly to build that infrastructure it's a lot more costly to maintain that infrastructure mm-hmm. and they were talking about how our cities and our states and even our federal government is running out of money to continue to maintain these things because we've basically built beyond the capacity of um, what we can keep up um, like having a giant house but not really having the time to clean it all um, 
kind of mentality mm-hmm. of it looks really good. It looks really nice. It looks like we're doing really well because we have such a huge space, but then what it costs to keep that that house cool or to keep it hot or to make sure it's dusted, right? Like that's, that's a lot of time and money spent um, when maybe that large of a space is not needed. It's kind of the the way I kind of saw it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So, so communities like this, not only are they kind of forming, making it potentially harder to connect with other people, but also there's a cost to society to build these communities right. beyond just the social cost. Mm-hmm. Melissa and I talked a little bit and we both really liked the next chapter more. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's move on to that one. The how we got here because it was much more informational and a lot less kind of like grumpy. <laughs> yeah, kind of history. Yeah. Or condescending, I think was Melissa's word. <laughs> Maybe. So the, the view of the city being like this dirty place that you need to escape kind of started happening around like the industrial revolution. Right. Right. And I talked about how there was good reason for that. Yeah. Cities were kind of like awful places. Yeah. Pre. They were dirty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but some of the men who started to really push building out on the edges were oh, folks like um, Frank Lloyd Wright uh, and, oh, I don't know how to say his name. I know. I, I see his name, but I don't want to say it because I don't know how to pronounce Le it. Le Corbusier. Le Corbusier. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how. <laughs> yeah. Ebenezer, Ebenezer Howard. So these garden cities and these... Um, they promised lungfuls of fresh air and conviviality for Londoners who could afford, or who could afford to retreat to their semi-rural setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's promising uh, nothing less than spiritual redemption for the tenement dweller who could lead his family away from the Gothic verticality of Manhattan. So anyway, like trying to escape and be mm-hmm. healthy. Mm-hmm. And there's some truth in that. Like I think even my own family story. My great grandfather um, was a streetcar driver in oh. St. Louis, and he um, cool. also smoked a lot, so this probably contributed to it. Yeah. But he th- had what they called lung cancer, and they the doctors told them like, "You need to get out of the city. The city is killing you. Um, you need to go somewhere with fresh air." And he did. He moved out to this really super rural part of Missouri. Got a farm. Did like basically like subsistence farming for quite a while. Um, and he did get healthier and he lived quite a long time, um, in that setting. But that was what, that was like the doctor's orders, right? Like leave the city, go somewhere with clean, clean air, healthy air. Yeah. I mean, even here we get warnings about our, right. The quality of our air. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think there is something to that, like escaping the, the, squall and pollution of the city um but it's maybe not in the same way that it used to be yeah and it's also kind of ironic because that brings more infrastructure out to the edges and more cars out to the edges and which creates more pollution yeah Yeah. um i did like what it it was helpful to me to understand that they were trying to build cities that had uh really functionally pure districts um so like this area is for houses and this area is for industry and that was created as a way to protect people mm-hmm. from um, pollution or, you know, other right. or toxins. Even. Yeah. 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 So there were some good intentions. But also the zoning kind of 
uh, gives some um, liberties to like some racism mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways and some really mm-hmm. unhealthy use of zoning. For sure. It, on the next page, it talks about how zoning was intended to reduce congestion, improve health, and make businesses more efficient. But most of all, it protected property values. Right. And so seeing kind of like the almighty dollar being underneath a bunch of that. Yes. And then, like you said, then it's it spirals out into, oh, well, we can create zoning laws in a way to make sure that this minority group can't afford to live here or wouldn't right. live or even here. The or, example they gave in Modesto, California, when they introduced the law banning laundries and wash houses, which all happen to be run by Chinese. Mm-hmm. Right. So, they were all so that's out. a very uh, a sneaky way to... Mm-hmm keep your so not only is our zoning keeping districts pure in the sense of like just this type of business but it's also saying only this type of community can live here yeah you did some uh some historical research on zoning in mesa didn't you or no well i don't know if this was specific city zoning but i know that there yeah i mean yes there that was more like fair housing that okay um African-American and Hispanic folks weren't allowed to purchase houses in certain parts of the city, and they were in other parts. Like, I know the... Well, what do you, one of the quotes he said in the book, if you want to keep poor people out of your community, all you really need to do is ban duplexes and apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. Like, zone that out of the way. Yeah. And I, you know, thought of that when I read that, because I am someone that has lived in, you know, duplexes and apartments um, for most of my life in the U.S. And so I was like, hey, but I want to be a part of this community. Um, and thinking, actually, I see myself as a contributing member of society and a, and a good part of the community. And so being intentionally kept out, it, I don't know. It just was funny to see hmm. myself in that in that um, example <laughs> of fun. Don't, don't create places where I can't live, especially if it's a place that I really love and care about. Yeah. But now the zoning has caused so much layers upon layers of rules and standards about what you could do. Like even, I mean, we, in our own home, there's so much we can't do because of zoning. It would, like it, it would structurally it would be fine if we did certain things to our home. Right. You, like you can't build me a house in your backyard so I can live with you. Right. <laughs> Which is what I would really like it's for you to do, but you're not allowed to. Out of living. <laughs> yeah, in some ways, it's gotten in the. It's created a barrier for our community. <laughs> I did like that he kind of railed on homeowners associations. Yes, I'm not a huge fan so of HOAs, but I know some people are, and they see the value in them um, because it's saying not only do cities zone neighborhoods and say what can be built and what can't, but then also. And I like that he was like, you American people, or we as Americans, we hate for people to tell us what to do. But yet, not only do we invite cities to zone our communities, we also really want HOAs. Like, that's the desirable thing, is to move into a neighborhood with an HOA so that all your neighbors can get in all your business and tell you exactly what you need to do or what color to paint or how high your grass can be. But that's because, yes, the property value. And I actually right now serve on the HOA in my neighborhood. Okay. Sorry. Um, for the year. I'll have different opinions. And you know, like, I think that it's easy for some of the HOA stuff to become petty and uh, mm-hmm. too much in everybody's business. Yeah. But on the other hand, I can see 
the need for it and other circumstances like Camille for you to be creative in your neighborhood with your home you guys like to create and make things that are beautiful and functional and helpful but there might be people who would use their creativity in different ways yeah, to create right. things that are destructive yeah and so I don't know like those those rules have a reason it's a bummer when they get taken too far and they squelch yes. good creativity mm-hmm. yeah that's to be sure yeah I still like your mom. Oh, thank you. I still <laughs> like you too. Even if you don't like my job. Right. <laughs> You'd also be different, I think, in a in an apartment setting. Mm-hmm. I, I would be okay to submitting to more rules because my neighbors would be so close to me. <laughs> That's true. In our neighborhood, none of the houses are freestanding. They're all either townhomes or condos. And it affects other people a lot more when you share right. walls with them. Yeah, as you found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm, what about that, Camille? That in order to have a more dense, walkable city, that you need more more HOAs. Is that? Are you willing to? As long as I get to choose my HOA. <laughs> <laughs> it, w- it would be worth it, I think. The city of Mesa actually likes the HOAs too because it passes off some of the financial responsibility for certain things like landscaping in oh. areas or irrigation or things like that yeah. to the management of the HOA where the HOA actually pays for it with the dues from the members and they're the ones who have to deal with some of the issues and problems that come up with it and right. it saves the city a lot of time. Right. That's true. Yeah. And in some way, I guess when it's done, not when an HOA is not like so authoritarian or narrow-minded, it can be an opportunity for good community. Mm-hmm community help of the neighborhood mm-hmm. um yeah i think it how that hoa is seen by the members that are submitting to it i think is important if it's something that you can just use as a way to punish your neighbors yeah. like your grass is too tall or we're gonna give you a fine we have a friend who lived in a neighborhood somewhere in mesa uh and they put up a portable basketball goal in their driveway and got in trouble because come to find out it's against HOA rules. Mm. They oh. can't even have it. So they moved. <laughs> so yeah. there's always that. Right. You don't like it, you can get out. Right. Um, but I think it, it HOAs can facilitate community conversations about what is important to us and how do we want to do this. Right. But just like any human system or structure, it can be also used in a way to to be harmful or create barriers. So it could also be like, oh, well, um, this isn't okay, so we're going to fine you instead of, like, engaging in, hey, what's going on? Like, oh, you've had this family tragedy or something. You know, like, how yeah. can we come together? Like, so it, it could either create space for those conversations to happen or shut down conversation by just leaving a something in the, the mailbox, right? Oh. Right. I feel like our HOA president is a great example of like the good side of it. She's mm-hmm. been the president for 10 years and it's all voluntarily. She doesn't get any compensation mm-hmm. for it. And she just loves the neighborhood and she wants there to be good things in the neighborhood. She wants it to be her who's there who can deal with issues instead of a property manager who lives somewhere else so that she yeah. can immediately respond. And she's the one who's letting us know if there's someone who had to go to the hospital or someone who's having a really hard time and then other people are aware and can offer to help with things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it's really cool. Sometimes HOAs they <laughs> suck. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> that is what we learned from <laughs> today's discussion. <laughs> uh, so he went into the history 
briefly of streets. That was interesting. It was interesting. That was a cool part. I wish I could experience streets the way they were historically when mm-hmm. streets were for people and not so much for cars. It kind of made me think of where my parents live in China. They live in a large city, but that's still much more the culture with lots of bikes and like silent motor scooters of death that can pull you down from behind <laughs> and pedestrians and animals uh-huh. sometimes. And there's more and more cars as time goes on in China mm-hmm. for sure too. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of crazy, mm-hmm. but it's really different. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. 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 And I, I have lived in places too like that where, okay, so you can have a car if you can afford it, but the roads aren't good and maintained and the cars are really hard to keep up. So and you can't much, go very fast anyway. And you can't go fast, the road. <laughs> right? And so it was a lot of like gathering and talking in the road spaces or kind of walking across the road without looking and thinking about it even, um, because it was less common to have that. And, um, there, there is something nice about kind of that safe protected space because i think in our community and culture being a pedestrian does mean that you have to be really aware um because you are potentially in danger but it's interesting that it was twisted that way that the streets were for the people and suddenly the people had to be the ones on their guard and aware Mm -hmm. and not so much the cars or the drivers or shit drivers (laughs) yeah yeah in the 20s whenever the cars really started to fill the streets. This guy, Peter Norton, called it a new kind of mass death. In uh, that year, more than 200,000 people were killed in motor accidents. Oh, I'm sorry, that decade, not that year. Uh, most of the dead were pedestrians. Half were children and youths. Hmm. That's pretty big. Arizona has the highest amount of pedestrian deaths per capita in the whole United States is scary. Mm-hmm. Especially as someone like you who's out as right. a cyclist or walking. Yeah, and part of that is not, is because of the way the streets and the speeds are set up. So you, on our, like our street right here, where people are going like 15, maybe 20 miles an hour, it's kind of okay. You can react quick enough, or even if you do get hit, you you might come out okay. Pretty mm-hmm. banged up, but you might be okay. Uh, and you're not going to go walking on the freeways. Right. Because that would just, I mean, suicide. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. No one walks on the freeways. It's entirely unpleasant. Um, but then we have that road in the middle where folks are going between 40 and 50 miles an hour. Not fast enough to be on the freeway, not slow enough to be here on the neighborhood streets. So that's the that's the deadly speed. Mm-hmm. If you get hit there, you, you could be killed mm-hmm. pretty easily. And also, that's where a lot of pedestrians are walking mm-hmm. and turn cross streets because those are the main streets of how you get places. Right, right. Um, I think you had an interesting realization too when it talks about like how streets are built and how that influences speed right oh you mean the part the perceived safety Mm -hmm. Mm. so in the book he was talking about how drivers don't notice the posted speed limits nearly as much as they just subconsciously feel how how fast it's safe to drive and so roads that are a lot wider and curve more gradually and don't have things along the sides people are a lot 
more likely to drive fast and not really pay attention, even though those streets were designed that way in order to be safer, to be wider, mm-hmm. to have wider shoulders, to have obstacles and trees and things out of the way on the sides. It actually makes it more dangerous on those roads because you aren't paying attention to what's going on around you right. and you're speeding a lot more. Yeah. And I found the other day that I was thinking about it as I was driving, like I tried to be really careful to follow the speed limit, but I had to pay a lot more attention on the roads that were open and, more, and wider and more gradually curved than on the ones like right next to my house where there's a whole bunch of stuff around and you kind of have to go slow. Space that is interesting to mm-hmm. psychological play mm-hmm. that the streets have on us. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of the opposite of the intention, unfortunately. Yeah. For um, about a week, a few months back, we had one of the uh, clean sweep things on our street where uh, one of our neighborhood girls organized the city to come drop off big dumpsters, basically. So we had like five of them down our street. And it's maybe about the width of, an, of a big SUV which and truck, which we do have parked on our streets, but it's much taller and blockier. So people are going way slower down our street way slower I felt so safe and even driving I felt safe because I wasn't worried that you know some I was going slow enough to where if a kid did come out mm. on his or her bike you know darting between two cars I would have enough time to stop so that perceived distance of oh my gosh my street's so much narrower you know it wasn't it was still normal <laughs> yeah it was, it was nice mm. Um, one of the things he talks about in this chapter is this idea of like Futurama. So kind of moving Mm -hmm. toward, um, like page 72, 73, um, where as things are starting to develop, it was seen as like the progressive thing or like the, the streets of the future are wide and nothing is standing in your way as a car. Um, and I, I think it's interesting to think about that now from our perspective where that is kind of the cities we live in where there's multiple lanes and you can, there's not much stopping you. Um, but I thought it was interesting that they were saying like, um, McClintock who, uh, Miller McClintock, who was, um, I don't even know exactly what his role was. Uh, he was like this traffic planner guy. Yes. Um, who was a Harvard. The first American to earn a doctorate in traffic. Yeah. Um, so he was talking and he said, uh, the enemy of freedom was friction. And the nation needed roads unhindered by the friction of intersections or parked cars or even roadside trees. Um, and I thought that was interesting that, like, in order to have my freedom, I need wide open spaces. Um, which is a very kind of, it makes sense. Um, but then I guess looking at like what the cost of that freedom might be, um, is maybe safety or connection to our community. Um, and that, that is an interesting interplay because freedom is something that we value, but we also value other things as well. And are we willing to trade those things for freedom Yeah, to go fast and get places quickly? I don't know. I'm going to be honest. Sometimes I think maybe yes, but I know that the if I'm really thinking about it, I don't want to trade those things. But in the moment, sometimes I'm like, okay, with trading those things. <laughs> when I'm late somewhere. Right. Yeah. Or maybe if we didn't have the option of our car to get us there quicker, maybe we'd be a little bit better at time management. That's what I always think to myself. Maybe not you, Johan. <laughs> right? I don't think anything will help me with that. <laughs> but 
And when I lived in a culture where I walked, I was late. When I lived in a place where I walked, I was yeah, late. Really, and now yeah. with cars, I'm so late. It just means a lot more running when there are cars, right? <laughs> <laughs> a lot more physical effort. Yep, that's true. So maybe we just uh, like re- replace our streets with um, those moving sidewalks in the airport. <laughs> I do love those in the like airport. A <laughs> How do vampires walk? Well, you know, you, haven't you seen Twilight? No. Dang it. Never mind. Maybe, I thought they were just like know what I'm talking about. hot men that when- walked with confidence. <laughs> in the forest a lot, right? No, right. no the when they were walking in the forest, they had a moving sidewalk and like they were, their bodies were moving slower than everything was passing. Oh, okay. Huh. Okay. Weird. Like they were like powering, like when you walk really fast on the moving sidewalk and you feel like you're a... A superhero with super speed. Or then you get to vampire. the end and it's or a hot vampire. <laughs> <laughs> I often feel like that. A hot vampire? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just no moving sidewalk required. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So in this Futurama um, section, it, it also talked about how they created um, in the 1939 World's Fair. Um, they created this uh, overview of like what a city could be in the future, and I really <laughs> wish that you listening to the podcast could see this picture because I, I really is pretty cool. I wish I was there. I really love it. It's all these people sitting in like these chairs that are like suspended from it, the ceiling. It looks like a roller roller coaster chair. It does. <laughs> yes. But they're instead of being like three across, it, they're just all like right next to each other, all side by side, instead of being long, and they're just slowly being moved through this like uh, large replica of a city with wide streets. Um, yeah. and I don't know; it's just a cool yeah. picture. Yeah, it's cool. Th- this I felt so frustrated reading this because this whole thing is uh, sponsored by Shell Oil and General Motors. Mm-hmm. But still, people, or maybe I'm just generally too suspicious of the person. But, uh, All these industries with these a huge bi- vested bi- interest in creating a car culture were basically saying to America, "This is the this is the future. This is what you need to do." Guess who's going to make a lot of money off it? Kind of like a a lot of the um, reports on when your child should be ready to be potty trained is sponsored by like Pampers and Huggies. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. That seems, makes me skeptical. But that's well, what I'm saying. That made me skeptical too. It made yeah. me mad that like people were trying to profit and so they potentially changed the way that we move through our spaces so they can make more money. Although it is impressive. It was really effective. Yeah. It's amazing that, I don't know, several companies working together could change society so much. Yeah. So much. Yeah. So much. It's still changing. Mm-hmm. It made me think of like the De Beers diamond like campaign of like, you know, diamonds forever. You have to give a diamond ring for an engagement ring. Well, then now everybody does that. Like mm-hmm. it, that's a huge amount of power and influence. Um, and that is just kind of in a small area. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, like it, um, our society is functionally entirely different because of that investment and that lobbying. I would say that potentially some of that was even done with like good intention, Hmm. right? This will be a better society. We're making cars and yeah, we'll make money, but also this is good for progress. This is progress. 
right? It's like hmm. housewives in the 50s being like, Jello is the new wonder food. And <laughs> all these instant meals are amazing. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, it, it seemed like progress. It was progress. It just also came with costs. Hmm. Yeah. Whether that's nutritional value or uh, fuckability. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I I would not. I we're not getting rid of our car. <laughs> Josh and I really, really value living somewhere that's walkable, but we're not getting rid of our car. Right. So I, yeah, for sure, there's progress in having cars in the streets. Just think it's a little bloated. So that's kind of. And then, and then just kind of basically talking about, yeah, so then as those cities were built with, like, larger streets um, where walkability was harder, then they, those systems were copied over and over and over. And we see, essentially, if you go to most cities in the U.S., there is that same overall structure of the roadway systems um, set up to be moving people <clears throat> as quickly as possible from place to place. Yeah. And yeah, as he he was as he's drawn to a close in this chapter, I like that at the end basically what he's saying is he's not trying to make anyone change their life right now. But he says just try to be able to identify the unseen systems that are influencing our health and our control and our behavior. Mm-hmm. Just like get woke to it a little bit. Yeah. Is that appropriate to say? Yeah. Yeah, just like wake up and notice there's good in this, um, but then there's also cost in it. Thanks for listening. This is Camille. And Johanna. And Melissa. Out.